anybody's familiar with Brian Regan, here's what he says about uh, the doctor. Only your doctor has carte blanche on insults. He just insults you for a while, then you pay him for the insults on the way out. Hey, you should lose some weight, and those moles are looking pretty weird. All right, how much for that, doc? And sometimes that's, that's the experience of going uh, to the doctor. Uh, that was actually my experience about 10 years ago. I'd messed up my knee, a combination from teaching the kids how to do the shuttle run, and, uh, and it was right after the week in Mexico when we did it with the Vacaville Church and this church together. And then we went snowboarding. All these things combined, I destroyed my knee. And I also uh, discovered I had an intestinal or abdominal hernia. So I went to the doctor, you know, fix these things. I see some of your faces. You're saying, telling us too much already. Sorry. <laughs> fix these things. He says, well, um, okay, knee, hernia, you should lose 25 pounds. Like, no, I just want you to fix these things. So, um, so I met him halfway. Um, but, you know, often we go to the doctor. He tells us things we should be looking out for, lifestyle changes we should make. And uh, we might not heed that advice. But if we don't, we pay for that down the road, don't we? Sometimes, dearly, we need to take charge of our health. Well, when it comes to the church, sometimes uh, we have that same attitude. We want our church to be healthy. We want it to thrive. We want it to be relevant. We want it to grow, to be alive, to be meaningful. And, uh, and yet sometimes we bark up the wrong trees to make that happen. But the Lord himself has revealed the secret, so to speak, of being a healthy, vital, living, relevant, growing church. And, uh, and he tells them to us. And so we, we better listen. We don't want to, like the, going to the visit the doctor and he tells us, you know, make these lifestyle changes and then we walk away and don't do those things. When we come to God's word, we want to say, oh, I'm going to take heed to that because the health of your church is so worth protecting. The life and vitality of your church is totally worth those life changes. Take charge of the health of your church. So, 1 Timothy 3, towards the end and the beginning of of, uh, chapter 4, tells us how, what to watch out for, what to change. This is part of uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, as we've been in this for for several weeks. And uh, we've talked about leadership and doctrine and quarrels and a lot about prayer, praying in the church and praying as a church. Um, But in this section, he goes back to really the theme, the central core of the book, which is doing church as God intended. And right here in the middle of the book, he drills back down to this theme. And so this morning we're going to answer this question. What do I need to pay attention to in order to protect the health and life of my church? And we'll see three things, three arenas, areas that that Paul draws our attention to. Three areas that you and I need to carefully protect in our church. So we'll be in 1 Timothy 3, we'll start in verse 14 and go to chapter 4, verse 5. And let me read that this morning. Uh, Verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. It's a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. 
He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Lord God, teach us from your word this morning. We just offer up this time to you and open our hearts to you. In Christ's name, amen. So three things, three arenas and areas that you and I need to watch carefully to protect the vitality of our church. And the first one is just simply treating it as precious. Verse 14 says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, in other words, Paul's saying, I, I really want to come to you. I want to I come as soon as possible, but this can't wait. The things I'm writing in this letter are of urgent matters, and I really need you to know. And what is so important for you to know, verse 15, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Uh, to behave, it's kind of literally to go back and forth in a place, how to conduct yourself, how do we do church, so to speak. You know, as you, as you come and as you go, as you sing, as you pray, as you stand and sit and as you serve and as we eat together and all these things, how do we do it in a way that's honoring to God? How do we behave? What do you do, what do you need to be mindful of as you go through doing church? I'm not speaking of the church building or even the church service per se, but whenever God's people gather as God's people. In other words, you and another believer or a bunch of us together are meeting because we share that in common. And certainly that includes this worship service, but it includes other arenas as well. So how is it that the church is unique and precious? Why should we be treating it with such awe? He gives us maybe a few reasons. First, it is the household of God, he calls it. It's God's house. When God's people meet together, it's the home of God. Household could be the dwelling place, you know, the place you reside, you live. Um, when, uh, when Christians gather, that's where God dwells in a very special sense. It, even in strange ways, we might not um, immediately think, uh, Matthew 18 talks about uh, church uh, discipline or, or discipline within the family of God where somebody who's just blatantly um, uh, sinning and doesn't want to change and so, um, um, so we're called to come together with another third person to address that person. And, uh, and it says in verse 20, because where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Familiar with this verse? When we gather here, or when we gather to do something in Christ's name, we're on a mission project together, we're in a Bible study together, the Lord in some special way is with us, 
dwelling there. It's his house. It's his portable house. Wherever you are, <laughs> there he is. But household also means family. When we gather together, we are the family of God. And that should make us think, this is a precious thing going on. This is not just a random collection of people. This is a collection of related people, related by blood people that belong to Jesus, are in the family of God. So it's precious because it's the household of God. But then he goes on to say, it is the church of the living God. The church, it means a gathering or a formal assembly of the living God. This is where people come together to meet with God. And that should strike awe in our hearts that we gather together with God. Men and women and children and God all gathered together. Not a dead God, not a memorial to a God of the past, but a living God. We come together expecting him to show up, expecting him to be at work in all of our hearts and lives. This is a sacred thing going on here. So whether it's a cathedral or a storefront church or a living room or Christians hiding in the catacombs, it's a sacred assembly where we meet with a living, active God. And the third thing he mentions is that the church is a pillar and a buttress of truth. So a pillar is, you know, these are architectural terms. A pillar holds the building up, and uh, the buttress keeps it from popping out the sides. Um, with modern architecture, we do that in some, some other complicated ways. But, but it used to be, you know, especially if you had a big arch, you'd have to support the building on the sides or just, you know, pop out, so to speak. And I think of this as pillars and, and buttresses of, of holding up the truth, you know, for all to see, presenting it, putting it on display, and also holding it in so the truth doesn't, you know, dissipate. And we see, uh, we see Christian gatherings that either uh, maybe they're not really holding up the truth or maybe the truth has kind of leaked out and it's become diluted. So the church is not the source of truth. It's not the architect of truth. God is that. His word is that. But it's the sacred responsibility of the truth to hold, uh, the church to hold that up and to hold it in, so to speak. So all these reasons, the, the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth, makes us pause and say, this is a sacred precious thing we have here and we need to to guard that and treat it as such there's a lot of clubs you could be involved with other kinds of assemblies teams you could be on um, activities where you're meeting with other people but there's nothing as precious as god's gathering place some moments in life just feel sacred because they are the birth of a, a baby i, I Saw my kids being born. That's pretty mind-blown. Um, you know, weddings, um, just major life events. It's like there's this sacred solemnness. Like, this is a precious thing. I don't want to, I don't want to just let this slide by. That's why we take a lot of pictures at, at these events. We just want to treasure it. Or sometimes when we're out in nature, 
it's Yosemite, I believe. Um, there's some places, I was with my cousin standing up on Glacier Point and looking out at the valley. I don't know if you've ever done that. It's just, wow, that's just amazing. Or hiking in the Grand Canyon, just seeing the awe of nature. There's just times when it just, you know, it's like, wow, this is amazing. Even a little taste, uh, yesterday, uh, Heather and I were on a walk and we saw whales and dolphins on the same day out there. And she's like, it's just amazing. It's just so beautiful. Wow, this is really precious. But nothing is precious as the gathering of God's people together. So what does it look like to make it precious? For you and I to treat the church as, as sacred, as, as very special, I think one thing it means is you just prepare yourself as you, as you come to meet together. Uh, the psalmist says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. You know, as you're coming up to the temple, as you're coming up to, to God's house, to the gathering, you come with thanksgiving in your heart, with praise. You've, you don't just stumble in here like, oh yeah, sure, okay, let's go, but but be aware of how, how wonderful this is that we get to gather together like this. Uh, another way we can make it special is uh, just don't miss. <laughs> you come, make it a priority to, to show up. Um, there's lots of other things we could fill our, our mornings with. I used to tell people the surf is always bad on Sunday mornings. Just don't even, don't even try. Um, I'm not sure that's totally true, but make it a priority. Um, don't just be present, but be present. <laughs> you know, have your whole self here. Be engaged. If you're interested in making God's church vital, living, growing, healthy, relevant, it's not that that one amazing program. It's not that that uh, activity. It's not doing it like we used to do. It's not doing it like the church down the street does it. It's by treating it first as, as precious when we come together. So one of those reasons it's precious is because the church is the place that we uphold and hold in the truth. And so he continues on, what is the essence of this truth? Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Quite literally, you could phrase that, confessedly great is the godliness mystery. Uh, it's phrased like we, we do in the English Bibles because we don't usually conjugate that word that way. But, but what's happening is, is confessedly, it's a undeniably, most certainly, we all agree on this. It's the, it's the common belief. So we could say everyone who's a true follower of Jesus believes this same thing and holds fast to it. To protect the vitality of your church we need to hold fast to the common faith. And what is the essence, the core, the central fact of our common faith? If you've been around Sunday school, the answer is Jesus. It's Jesus. So he goes and he tells us six statements about Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh. That's talking about the incarnation, what in the beginning of John it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God of the universe came down and became a man. Um, Philippians 2 talks about he emptied himself and became one of us. It's the incarnation. He is manifested in flesh, in like a human form. 
He was vindicated or justified, declared righteous by the Spirit. And I believe this speaks of the resurrection. So we know from reading scriptures that, uh, that Christ died to save us from our sins. He took on God's wrath to offer us forgiveness. And uh, when he rose from the dead, that was the Spirit's stamp of approval that, uh, that it worked, so to speak. It, it says he was righteous. He was God. The God is satisfied with that offering. And so I think that speaks of, of the resurrection. He was vindicated by the Spirit by coming back to life. Next, he was seen by angels. You know, when he ascended, he, he went into glory. He's at the throne room of God in the presence of the heavenly host. The fourth thing is proclaimed among the nations. Well, this began in his earthly ministry, and it's going on right now. Um, the, the missionaries we support in our church are doing that to the ends of the earth. We're, we're doing it here locally. Believed on in the world is next. Ultimately, it's so exciting to think that ultimately there'll be representatives from every tribe in the world that believe and follow Jesus and will be with us for eternity. From every, every people group in the, in the world, there'll be representatives that follow Jesus, believed on in the world. And finally, taken up in glory, which is either a reference to his ascension or to when he returns in the clouds. He'll be lifted up before us in glory. These things we gather around, we hold fast to, we cling to, and we say, we're, we're not fudging on these. We totally place our lives in Jesus' hands. We unite around this. Um, this is very likely, um, most scholars agree, this is probably an early uh, song of the church or, or a creed, some kind of formal statement. There's, there's six kind of parallel uh, they have kind of a rhythmicness uh, to them in the Greek um, that says these statements about Jesus. So it's as if he's, he's saying, uh, hold fast to the truth about Jesus. You know, he came from heaven to earth to show the way, from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. You know, he, he rolls right into this kind of familiar, familiar song. Or hold fast to that truth about Jesus. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, the incarnation, the gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. And he rolls right into these familiar words that says, here's what we rally around. Here's what we hold fast to. Here's what we don't fudge on. So in our education system, there's an initiative, the Common Core, and the intent is to to make sure everybody, as they get done with a certain grade, knows certain things. Well, you know, I know the general principle is great. I know there's wildly different opinions on whether that works or not, but that's not what I'm talking about this morning. Um, but the truth is, in the Christian faith, we have a common core, and, and Paul just told it to us. We rally around this. Make sure you know and hold fast to this. As a church, it means our programs, our mission projects, the teaching from up here, whatever we do has to go back and drive people to Jesus. What is he like and what has he done? As individuals, there's always kind of a temptation to maybe shy away from speaking clearly about Jesus. And this passage reminds us, no, 
This is the main thing. Hold it up. Hold it in. Don't let that leak out of your, your life. Let it bubble over out of your life for sure, but not let it leak out of your life. If you want your church to thrive, keep bringing it back to Jesus. Okay. Often, though, it's not a matter of, uh, of denying something. It's a matter of adding something where we, we go astray. It's not denial of Jesus, but it's distractions from Jesus. And that's where we turn to chapter 4, the first few verses. Again, it starts off like this. Now the Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. We're reminded again of uh, the reality of a spiritual realm around us. There is um, there's a real tendency to either ignore it or to become obsessed with it. But I think the biblical model is to do neither of those, to be totally aware of it and prepared against it um, and to, to leave it at that. In popular, you know, media, movie or whatever, evil spirits are so dramatic. You know, they summon the demon. But really, the, the main um, tactic of the enemy is infinitely subtle. We, we don't notice what he's doing. And all he does, pretty much his only capability at all, is just to introduce little thoughts into our minds. Seems simple, quiet, subdued, like how... How'd that get in my head? Why, why am I thinking that right now of, of all times and places? We should not rule out that there's a spiritual enemy around us. Well, sometimes it's lies of denial. But in this passage, uh, it's the opposite. It's lies of adding. Here's one of the ways that uh, we get deceived, led astray. Verse 3. These people who were deceived and deceiving... They forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So what was going on is they were distracted from the simple gospel. To protect the vitality of your church, we need to be aware of those insidious, subtle distractions, the adding to um, you kind of just call that legalism, things we, we subtly require, we, we place on other people, we place on ourselves. We're thinking these things are intrinsically more spiritual somehow. It's a Jesus plus the works of man. And I think all of us think that idea is really terrible. Why would I want to add this? And yet it's, it's pervasive that we, we tend to do this. Uh, we're all so susceptible to formulating our own rules. And pretty much all of us think it will never be me. There's a lot of areas of life that are like that. We, we just grossly um, mispredict what's likely to happen to us and what's unlikely to happen to us. I came across this little comment recently. One in four car accidents are caused by texting and driving. People Ah, this won't be me. 
One in 292 million chance of winning the Powerball. People, well, you never know. And so we, we grossly misestimate what is likely to happen. You know, some, I don't even know if these statistics are you know, made up or whatever, but, but the point is certainly true. Um, you know, something simple as, you know, texting and driving, like, ah, you know, what are the chances? Well, about, well, several years ago, I was just starting seminary. I was driving uh, 90 miles uh, each way to school. It was ridiculous. Through not, not 90 miles, like, down the beautiful coast here where, you know, it's, it's all lovely. and It's through, um, through uh, L.A. Uh, and Orange County traffic. Um, and so uh, one day I thought, well, I'm going to take the Metrolink, the train. But it really meant driving my car uh, almost a half hour to get to the train station and taking my bike with me, getting on the train, and then getting off uh, in Santa Fe and then riding my bike five miles to school. So because, you know, it was, it was an ordeal and it happened to be raining that day, and so I didn't do it again, which was a great thing because just that following, I think it was just the next week, was that enormous uh, train crash with the Metrolink. It's the same, you know, train I was riding on. It was one of the worst uh, train accidents in U.S. history, right down in L.A. The conductor of the train was texting. He was texting some kids that were on the train and, uh, and apparently missed when there was, you know, the red light, green light, <laughs> and uh, caused this horrible accident where dozens of people died. And so in our minds, we think, this will never happen. You know, obviously, if he weighed that out at all, he would not have done that, you know, the simple thing at all. Um, he would have fled from that. He would have paid attention. And uh, all this is to say that you and I, whether we like to admit it or not, have a tendency to add to the simple truth of God's word. I'm telling you, pastors have gotten distracted. Um, you know, ascetics, monks that spend their whole life just... Um, hunkered away, you know, thinking about Jesus, they've gotten distracted off course. Uh, biblical scholars and theologians, they've gotten off course. So is it uh, likely that that tendency resides in us as well? I, I'm just trying to elevate this and think, oh, wow, okay, we're not just talking about somebody out there, but what in my own heart do I tend to want to add to God's word and then take it a step further to require that of others as well. Interesting, I went to the Holy Land, Israel. Some sites are more, um, are more focused on like Jewish religious sites, and others are, are more like a Christian or Roman Catholic sites. And when you go to um, like, a, like a Catholic site, you got to take your hat off as a sign of honor. You know, so you walk into this cathedral, it's like, oh, I have to take my hat off. That'll, you know, it's a, just to honor the Lord. Then you go to the, the Hebrew sites, and you have to put a hat on. And so I think these were these supposed to be returned. I didn't know that at the time, but uh, I took one. And uh, so if you're down at the, at the Western Wall, which is a, as close as, um, as a Jewish person can get to, to where the Holy of Holies was, you know, um, they come and they, they pray there and they, they make 
little, write little prayers and stick them in the wall because that's just as close as you get to the, to the, holy, the holy temple of God where that, was, that site was laid aside. Um, but when you go in that region, uh, you have to put a hat on. And, and both uh, the Catholics and the Jews do that to honor God. And both of them are looking at each other thinking, what's, you know, what's your problem? And so we take things um, for a purpose, like, oh, let's give God honor in this way. And then over time, it becomes, uh, this is the only way to honor God. And if you don't, you're, you're dishonoring God. And so a kid comes into church wearing a hat, and we want to smack him upside the head and say, you know, you're desecrating Jesus. Get out of here. Well, I don't think that really happens here, but um, that might go through your mind, though. Uh, we might think certain um, music styles are intrinsically more spiritual. Maybe, maybe styles that were invented after Jesus was here, and Jesus is up in heaven thinking, man, I was just born at the wrong time because I'll never get to, you know. I know it doesn't really work that way, but um, something like we, we typically stand to read Scripture here. I love that. And I think I remember when that started. When, uh, when David Hollingsworth was in Siberia, which it always, uh, I always have this kind of warm feeling in my heart when you, you as the church sent him to Siberia, then you sent me to Sydney, Australia. And, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I hope he never, he, never sensed, he never showed that he had bitter feelings about that. But it was a really a meaningful time of ministry for, um, for Pastor Hollingsworth in, in Siberia, or that general region. And uh, he came back and he shared um, a moving story about, about how they stood for the reading of Scripture. And, and I think it was around that time that that became really a tradition in this church, and we more intentionally did that. And I, and I think it's a, a great tradition because it kind of, with your body, says, hey, this is important, but it's not any more spiritual. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a requirement. It's not if you were sitting down um, that uh, you're somehow, you know, Jesus is angry with you now. And so things are started for a really good reason, and we carry them on for a really good reason. But when we take that next step to say, like these guys were in this passage, you have to do this to be spiritual, we are adding to the simple gospel of Jesus. And if you want to protect the life, the future, the vitality, the health of your church, you and I need to look at our hearts and say, what are we adding (laughs) and requiring of others that God hasn't said. If God said it, we better do it. If God didn't say it, then, um, then we really don't need to, to fuss uh, too much about that. These three things are the way that Paul has shown to Timothy to pass on to us of how we could protect the vitality, the life, the future of the church how we could behave properly in his house is by just treating it as precious, sacred, holding just tenaciously to this common faith, the true core about who Jesus is. Each of us being completely uh, open our hearts to God and invite him to show us where we're adding to what he said, being aware of those insidious distractions. So it's like that visit to the doctor. You can go in, he prescribes these things, he says, watch out for these things, uh, you know, stay on top of these things, stop doing these things, start doing these things, 
and you could walk out and carry on, or you could take meticulous notes <laughs> and, and do what the Lord has said, what the doctor has said, what the Lord has said for his church to protect the vitality and life of your church. Because you and I, we need to watch out for our church, to guard her, to care for her, to protect her, um, because it's precious. You know, God's big church in the world will not fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. He's doing grand things in the world, and uh, we don't need to fret and think that, oh no, Christianity's going to dry up and, and disappear. God has it totally under control. But any individual little gathering of his can dry up, can get off base, can be distracted, can become unhealthy. And so you and I need to guard that with our hearts and with our lives. And uh, I'm just so glad to be in this together with you as we guard Christ's church together. Let's pray. Lord God, I am so thankful for this uh, local representation.